0: Batch and stream processing systems have been evolving for the past decade. From MapReduce to Apache Storm to Dataflow, the best practices for large volume data processing have become more sophisticated as the industry and open source communities have iterated on them. Dataflow and Apache Beam are projects that present a unified batch and stream processing system. A previous episode with Francis Perry discussed how those systems work in detail, and in today's episode, Eric Anderson discusses Cloud Dataflow, a service from Google that lets users manage their data processing pipelines without having to spin up individual servers to run them on. Cloud Dataflow is like the serverless movement that we've been doing several shows on. It represents a growing shift towards cloud providers offering services that abstract away the operational challenges of managing compute nodes. This is a really important area, and if you have any suggestions for topics around this area, please send me an email. Um, This serverless stuff is really fascinating, this decrease, decrease in needing to manage your own servers... And certainly if you find this episode interesting, you will like the previous episode with Francis Perry, where we really went into detail of windowing and Lambda architecture and all these challenges around stream processing. It's a really fascinating area, growing in importance. Uh, I hope you like this episode. Eric Anderson is a product manager at Google working on Cloud Dataflow. Eric, welcome to Software Engineering Daily.
1: Thanks for having me, Jeff. We've talked about doing this for a while, so glad it's happening.
0: Yes, we have talked about doing this for a while. In fact, we first discussed this, I think, like, before I even started Software Engineering Daily when we had lunch at Google in Seattle. This was back when I was still working in Amazon, so that was quite a while ago. Um, But it's great to finally get it going. Um, We we had a recent show about the history of data flow and streaming with your colleague, Francis Perry. And that's a rich topic, so I'd like to start off with discussing that. So from your perspective, how have the definitions of batch and stream processing evolved in the last decade? And how would you define those terms today?
1: So I think it's helpful to look at, um, there's kind of been uh, generations of processing systems. Uh, so you're you're familiar with MapReduce, kind of the initial um, model for batch processing, or processing in general, but was in fact batch processing. Most of the the, the programming model for MapReduce was very manual, if you want to call it that. You, you specified every specific um, processing step, and one of the the first things that happened was an evolution of the programming model. So we went from MapReduce style to something more like Flume or Crunch, where, um, and eventually Spark, where you specify the higher level objectives of processing. And then those systems, those APIs mapped to like, they, they would translate your higher level logic into a lower level MapReduce plan. Um, so there's kind of generation one and two of batch. And then the initial efforts in streaming uh, probably best characterized by Storm. Um, we're kind of best effort in many ways. They or, or when I should say, when I say Storm, I mean early versions of Storm. Storm's actually gone a lot better. But uh, you know, you would uh, the goal was low latency, and in some cases there wasn't uh, data processing guarantees. Um, there was uh, some limits to the to the API and what you could describe in your in your pipelines. And then more recently, we're seeing an emergence of uh, stream processing that is actually an alternative to and, and a potential replacement to batch. Um, I think systems like Flink or Beam, Dataflow, are 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 making uh, stream a, a first class option for for all processing. Does that help?
0: Totally. Yeah, that was a great description of the chronology. Um, and you know, it's interesting because uh, the conversation with Frances, she talked about. How these ideas evolved at Google and in the meantime they were evolving outside of Google at kind of a parallel uh, track. Could you talk more about what are the compromises that the, the earlier streaming systems were making that perhaps are not being made by systems like Flink or Dataflow or Beam um, in the modern systems?
1: Yeah. So I'll, I'll start with, with two. I may not, um, there, there's, there may be more, but, uh, so the, the two that come to mind are, um, and, and we may belabor this point, but like event time processing versus, um, system arrival time processing. So, uh, here, which we've, I'm sure we've covered before on the show, uh, the initial systems all focused on when events arrived at the system, uh, which is kind of the easiest Place to start, and maybe the most uh, simple way of processing the data. And these the the newer models are uh, taking into account the timestamp that comes on a payload, and allowing users to describe processing logic based on the event time, um, which is generally more useful. You know, you can recreate sessions and uh, recreate reality better. So, so that's one distinction. And then the other is uh, data processing. Uh, guarantees uh, generally uh, the early streaming systems were uh some variation of at, at least once or at most once processing where at least once was probably most common and what i mean by that is uh in order to ensure that everything gets processed um because th- there's chances in all distributed systems that uh there's failures along the way and most distributed system uh uh, software building is all about handling the fact that you can have failures. Uh, in, in the case of failure, we just in, in the early streaming systems we would just rerun um, the the data again, and and so it was unclear if if that data actually got reported to the downstream service or not. And in some cases, you would get duplicates, but but it was a best effort service, and it was um, if you want low latency, that's what you had to do. Right. So, the- so those are those are the two. Two situations,
0: yeah. The the exactly once processing difficulties. Uh, I think a, g- a good analogy for those uh, is, you know, if you want to ensure that something has been processed exactly once, it's almost like the 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 complexity and the labor involved in doing a three phase commit or two phase commit for a database transaction, which as we know is, you know, somewhat. You know, it's more overhead than than you might expect for you know if you just look at a database transaction from the outside looking in. Um, so, so you know, it's 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 nice that there are some some abstractions that are being introduced that uh, give us better guarantees around uh, exactly once processing and you know the 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 google dataflow paper suggests a movement away from these notions of batch and streaming francis talked about this a lot in the discussion these unbounded data sets that we're moving towards why are we moving towards th- this world where we have unbounded data sets
1: so uh, i'm glad you asked this is something i i'm pretty excited about i think there's there's maybe two reasons and the uh, initial move to unbounded data sets which kind of correlated with these early streaming systems we spoke to was all about kind of niche use cases for low latency uh, I wanted to know data now and I know I would get my answer at the end of the day or a week or however long it took for my vast systems to um, to finish but uh, there, there was advantage to having what you might call speculative information now and this was reserved for situations where, Latency was really critical, uh, and, and there was some variation of, of latency. There were some systems that optimized for like super low latency on the order of milliseconds, and but most were on the order of seconds. It was um, helped me make my business be able to operate on today's data rather than three days ago data. Uh, so that's that was kind of those are the niche use cases, and maybe we could we we should dive into those some. Um, but I'll jump to what I'm seeing more today as these systems. Uh, mature in ways that they can replace batch for many use cases. Uh, we're seeing people uh, adopt streaming first just everywhere. So it's not it's not a niche use case uh, thing. It's uh, going to a streaming first system and throughout my business uh, reduces my operational complexity. I, I'm, I have less kind of uh, batch scheduling and gating and also reduces my kind of Cognitive data complexity. I, I just know that all my data, as I see it, is as early. You know, it's. I mean, I live in a data now where it's like all my data, when it hits rest, is is fresh, as opposed to wondering if this batch ran, when does the next batch run, um, did this job actually get completed. So, uh, so yeah, I think I think I've answered your question there. That. Um, there's these niche use cases, but increasingly people are just using streaming everywhere.
0: Right. And this is in contrast to what we did in recent years, what, what many people are still doing uh, with the Lambda architecture, and you know, for for those who listen to the episode of Francis Perry, a lot of what we're talking now is kind of a rehash of that episode. We'll get into some new some new content, um, but I do want to go a little further into some of these same things that we talked about with Francis because I think these are really important topics and they're things that listeners are probably confused about or have questions about, even if they've listened to it before. Why don't you explain what were the problems with the Lambda architecture? What were the drawbacks of using the Lambda architecture? And, uh, you know, what do we get now that we're kind of moving beyond that and having... And for those who don't know, Lambda architecture is this, this way where you have stream processing and then you have batch processing to reconcile the problems that might have occurred during stream processing. So maybe you could talk about how we're moving beyond the Lambda architecture.
1: So the Land doctor maybe had two problems. One was first just complexity and duplication. And then the other is the fact the organization now has to deal with two sets of data and it's unclear what's the source of truth. So going back to the complexity um, and duplication, uh, you'll have basically two streaming systems or I'm sorry, two processing systems. You have your batch system and your streaming system. And again, with the early frameworks or even today, most data processing systems are tuned to either uh, batch or streaming. So not only do you have two systems, but they're probably two very different systems. And uh, up until recently, you had to, um, each of those systems had a unique API. Generally, we created APIs to systems that were specific to how they executed data. So you have um, your remaining two uh, distributed computing systems. They each have their own API, and so now you probably need two teams—one um, familiar with the, the nuances of each system, and familiar with the, the pipelines that have been written in each system. So that's that's just the complexity is that you've, you've duplicated the amount of work to process your data in order to in order to do um, to, to process one set of data. And then the the other side of this is is the fact that now your business is dealing with. Two sets of data as well. So um, you're making decisions today, in, you know, in near real time about what the streaming system is telling you, knowing full well that that isn't actually very accurate or or it has limited accuracy. And at the end of the day, you're then going to get batch data, um, or at the end of the week, and uh, and then it's uh, you'll have to like reconsider whether you made the right decisions. And uh, there may be some confusion within the org about. Uh, you know, you, there's multiple numbers being passed around for the same thing. So I think that those are the, the two things I see as as the bigger drawbacks are, are system complexity, of, as a result of duplication, and and then kind of organizational uh, confusion around two sets of data.
0: Okay, so we had this lambda architecture that was built to accommodate our streaming systems that may have had some problems and then now we have newer streaming systems that resolve this problem that we had with the original streaming systems where there's this uh potential for for uh duplicate processing there's this potential for event time skew which is the difference between event time and processing time so let's talk about that that latter feature so how do these newer streaming systems like Dataflow get over this event time skew? How do they accommodate this 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 uh, problem that arises where there's a difference between the time that an event happens and the time that that event is processed?
1: Yeah, sure, sure. This gets at the the heart of the issue. When uh, it was starting, so sh- the the early streaming systems took a follow the same path as batch, which is you can process data once you know it's all there. And in streaming systems, um, well, let me start by saying, generally with data processing, you want to aggregate data. And to aggregate data, you you specify some bound on, on that grouping. Uh, usually it's just time, but it could be like we said, a session, um, a user session. But taking time for a moment, uh, the the kind of early streaming systems using using system time could just wait five minutes, and if that's the the time aggregation, and then process the the most recent five minutes. Um, in that sense, it was kind of just like batch. I, I would wait till I had the known data set in front of me, and then I would process it. With if I move to event time, it's unclear when I have the last five minutes of events because uh, they may not have arrived yet. They, they could be late. Um, where late is some relative term that's not too useful right here now, but uh, they may not be at my system when I think it's probably about time to process the last five minutes. So we have to introduce, introduce some way of deciding when to process data. And um, the three concepts that emerge in, in the data flow or beam model are windows uh, and triggers and a watermark, which help you reason about when data. When it's time to to process an aggregation, when when do we think enough events are here to make a meaningful aggregation? And users uh, using those things, windows, triggers, and wa- and the watermark, um, can articulate all you know the universe of possibilities for how to handle um, this lag in in, in data between the event time and processing time.
0: Got it, and we talked about those in more detail in that episode with Francis Perry. But I'd like to get into some more discussion of what you are working on. More specifically, you are the product manager for Cloud Dataflow. Up until now, we've just basically been talking about Dataflow, and Dataflow is this paper that came out. Uh, it's it's a it's a streaming system from google um cloud cloud data flow is slightly different it's it's a hosted version of that system so i'd like to get into talking about what this does the business model how it fits into google's cloud strategy why don't you explain what cloud data flow is
1: sure so um on the on the earlier well yeah so, so cloud data flow is a batch and stream processing system uh it uh Requires use of the Beam or Dataflow SDKs. Um, so, and as, as you know that from the earlier show, the Apache Beam project is our is our open sourced SDKs um, that allow you to describe batch and stream processing jobs, and they can be executed on a number of runners, as we call them, or systems. And one of those is Dataflow, Cloud Dataflow. Uh, so, Cloud Dataflow uh, is is fully managed. Uh, in the sense that all users need to do to to use Dataflow is just submit their code to the service, and then the service takes care of deciding how many resources and what kind of resources need to be deployed to, to run that job, and then um, tuning uh, and monitoring the execution of that job so that it's optimized, and uh, and then and then returning the results to you in, in the way you specify. So it's 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 um, a bit more hands-off than, uh, than most, uh, approaches to data processing.
0: Now, what are the challenges around resource management and performance that developers, you know, so let's, let's contrast this with, you know, if if I'm, you know, when I had to roll my own, when I had to, when I had to ha- manage my own servers back in the day, um, you know, I think this is an, this is analogous to how people are managing many of their data processing pipelines uh, today. You know, you 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 host your own, or you or you have, or you host it in in Google Cloud or AWS or whatever your own Spark system or Storm system. Uh, Contrast that with what the experience is like if you are using a hosted version, because I think this is kind of a subtle difference.
1: Yeah. So, uh, so first, I'll start with. Uh, um, we could talk generally about hosted versions, but let me also talk specifically about data flow, because it's slightly unique in one aspect, in that um, we we've kind of gotten rid of the idea of clusters. So, normally, when you from the do point data, of view of the user. From the point of the user, correct. So normally, when you uh, you are deploying a a data processing job, you first deploy a cluster, uh, meaning you 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 kind of allocate several machines. You install the the framework of choice uh, on those machines, um, and then and you configure the cluster. Uh, You know you're you're specifying if you're in the cloud, you're choosing certain instance types that might be optimized for the workload. Uh, that you intend to run on the cluster, um, and, it, you, and you're choosing the number of machines that, um, you know, it fits with how much you want to, you know, how expensive you, how much you want to spend on, on these jobs, and how quick you want the jobs to done. Uh, so, so the, the business decisions you have to make are embedded into how you kind of configure this cluster, and then when it comes time to run jobs, you. Uh, you submit them to the, f- the framework that's sitting on the cluster, you know, Spark or Flink, or whatever, and they're then executed. Um, and you're monitoring the performance of the execution to check to see if you need to adjust the cluster configuration. Like, um, perhaps you realize that uh, your CPU utilization is low, and so um, at, at a certain stage of the pipeline, and you're thinking, maybe I'm, I'm memory-bound or I'm I-O-bound, uh, and so you may adjust your your instance types, your, the resources you're putting in the cluster to, uh, to fit your processing. Anyway, I've gone into maybe too much detail there. So with, with Dataflow, uh, rather than first creating a cluster and then submitting a job, you just submit a job to the service. Um, and then we, uh, we, we spin up necessary resources at the time you submit the, the job. We just spin up VMs. Uh, behind the scenes uh, process your job and then tear down the machines um, and we're uh, there's still some you know users still need to be cognizant about uh, some level of how their job is being executed and and what's the best way to specify uh, how the job should be executed but uh, we're, we're increasingly trying to remove those the, the need to think about those things more and more
0: Right. No, that's a great explanation. So if I am a developer who already has some MapReduce jobs or some s- Storm processing or some Spark or some Flink, how do I get started with the managed data flow service? What is the onboarding process going from having my own jobs uh, you know, r- r- specified on my own machines to getting it Move to the managed service?
1: Sure, sure. Um, and uh, let, let's think about this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of expand your questions maybe in two ways. So, one is if you just wanted to run uh, that particular job today on on cloud or on a managed service, uh, Google offers this product called C- Cloud Data Proc, um, which is similar to other managed Hadoop Spark services on other cloud providers. You could go there to just run your job today. Um, the other dimension to think about would be if you wanted to uh, to move towards using the Beam API, the Beam model, um, and you already have, uh, you know, Storm, Spark, or Flink at at your disposal uh, as a as a cluster or as a system, you could uh, begin to uh, map some of the logic, you know, write some of the logic of your original job in Beam, and then execute it, you know, Beam on your 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 local system you've already got set up uh, so those are two kind of intermediate steps towards data flow I, I, I would imagine but but to get to your original question um, the, the first thing you do is just is map the concepts of your logic in your current pipeline to the beam model which we found uh, as demonstrated in some of the examples we've published uh, is, is generally fairly concise a lot of um, a lot of the, the kind of code and, and verbosity in current pipelines are, are, are accommodating for some of the limitations in current pipelines. And so if using the Beam model, you may find it's a pretty straightforward um, way to write your your work. And then uh, user experience is simply, you would probably execute it locally first. Uh, generally, a best practice to, to confirm that what you think you've written in your pipeline is, in fact, what it's doing. And you can check with on some sample data that things are working great, and then you would just change one flag in your local execution um, to to tell it to submit it to the service, and then it would still run that that like Python or Java process locally, um, but it would prepare a payload that would then submit to the, the Google Cloud API that would that would deploy and execute that job on Dataflow service.
0: So, I cloud data flow seems to me like it falls under the purview of this kind of this serverless idea. Like it's not exactly the same as how pe- most people are using that word these days. Are you generally talking about uh, Google cloud functions or AWS Lambda? Um, but nonetheless in cloud data flow, you have removed the idea that you're dealing with servers. That is no longer a concern of the developer and this stuff is kind of bleeding edge. It's it's not been heavily adopted, uh, to my knowledge. I mean, there are people who are who are adopting and, and everybody can recognize the improved economics out of it. Um, but I do get the sense that that generally people are a little, still a little gun shy to adopting fully managed services and adopting uh, serverless type of stuff. Um, what who who have been the industries that you're seeing? adopt cloud data flow most aggressively
1: yeah sure so uh i think i yeah, let's see it's a good question
0: um or do you think my characterization is accurate
1: yeah yeah so, so yeah so maybe just a comment on the serverless list bit sure and we, we we go back and forth about calling um data flow service service serverless uh and 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 using other terms like fully managed um but yes yeah, it it, it it does fit in many ways in that categorization. And also it's unclear <laughs> as, as these terms go. It's unclear what that categorization means, but it's, it's being sorted out. And, and I'm very excited about where that's heading. Uh, so yes, um, you're right in that from the user experience, you just worry about code and you don't worry about execution. And you don't have to think about how execution is happening. Um, the uh, And then the other part about who who is adopting... Data flow as as maybe kind of related to who is adopting serverless type things. It's it maybe it's similar to early cloud adoption. Uh, it's generally we're seeing it from um, the, the the traditional or I shouldn't say traditional, but the, the startups, um, the kind of digital natives, uh, the people who are already on cloud providers. This is this is like less of a leap for them. Um, uh, maybe to offer a few examples, um, Spotify ha- has been very vocal about their enthusiasm for Dataflow. They've in fact written a um, uh, Scala wrapper on the Java SDK, which makes for many people Dataflow even more approachable. It's very their wrapper is very similar to Spark. Um, so we're excited about what they're doing, and um, and then lots of other companies um, from uh, retail. Startups like Zulily to um, uh, f- financial services companies like uh, there's this group FIS Global that is using data flow to actually uh, analyze every single stock transaction on the U.S. stock market, which is pretty amazing. So, uh, it, yeah. So I, I guess we're seeing it first from. There's one dimension is uh, is early adopters to cloud which have traditionally been kind of silicon valley startups but also this other dimension of people who just need um really have really big hairy big data problems like this fis global um group who's using it to analyze the stock market they they just they don't they couldn't have done what they were trying to do without having a managed service in the in the time frame they wanted to do it and ended up using data flow
0: that's interesting. So have they talked more about that use case? Or maybe you could talk about the Spotify use case? I'd be very curious to hear how their experience has compared to when they were managing their own their own clusters of, of uh, Flink or wh- whatever data processing system they were using, um, you know, because I-, I just love to hear, to hear about the operational burden that has been removed.
1: Yeah, yeah, it'd be. Uh, we should get them on the show sometime. But uh, there, there are kind of three general components to a streaming pipeline. Maybe I'll just call that out real quick. There's a often an ingestion queue, uh, if you want to call it that, or a uh, a buffer, and then there's the the data processing component, and then often data eventually gets persisted somewhere uh, in some kind of analytical database or data warehouse. And um, Spotify had had, uh, I think, was first introduced to BigQuery, which is a, a data warehousing solution that is uh, similarly service- serverless. I mean, there's no, uh, you can't even specify anything about configuration. You just send it SQL queries. Um, and they were, they were very excited about uh, BigQuery. And then when we introduced PubSub and Dataflow to them, they, you know, they jumped all in on uh, sending basically all events, user events, uh through PubSub and um and then processing those events using Cloud Data Flow and writing them to BigQuery. And the combination means uh I have I capture like my event system is simply an API. Like I just push events at an API. Um my data processing system is I write code and I submit it to a service. And in in the case of streaming, it's just running all the time without any kind of uh uh, operational load, sans monitoring to see if any adjustments need to be made, and then finally, um, yeah, the, the writing to BigQuery again is just submitting code to a REST API, that then, or not code, but data to the REST API, which um, appends it to the table where you can then submit SQL queries. So uh, that that's been the driver for Spotify is that they they feel like not only can um, are they getting world-class products to work with, but they, they don't have the operational overhead of, of teams uh, that are, uh, maybe another way to put it is the teams used to be assigned to like a cluster. It was like, we maintain the Flink cluster, the Spark cluster. And it wasn't clear that they those teams had then the time to actually innovate on the, the pipelines, which is really where you want the work to be done. Um, instead, they became kind of a, a necessary overhead to maintaining the status quo. So Spotify is now able to redirect those efforts into to moving the needle on the business.
0: And now Spotify is also well known for having migrated to Google Cloud from AWS not too long. Or Were they on their own servers or were they on AWS? I think they were on AWS, right?
1: Yeah, certainly they had some of their own servers if I remember right. But um, at the time they were they had some on AWS and they were moving to the cloud and it was unclear, you know, should we go double down on AWS or Google?
0: Right, and so it did I guess. This is kind of a related question. Do you do you need to be on? Do you need to have most of your infrastructure on Google Cloud to use Google Dataflow?
1: Uh oh oh no! So um, that's a great question. Uh, so the certainly um, the way like when we first started, um, I think what you're getting at is there's there's some part of uh data flow that requires input and output sources, support from input and output sources. And the initial sources we supported were, of course, the Google Cloud sources. Those were where our initial customers were. And we knew we could make those great because we were working with the other teams. Um, and now, and recently, we've, we've now expanded to um, contributing additional input and output source support. Uh, And this is this is falling under the open source Beam project um, community. So we're seeing uh, people contributing new support for new input and output sources all the time. Uh, In the case of streaming, uh, there are like within the Beam project, and there's now Kafka support, there's Kinesis uh, support, and we have customers using both of those. and we could go on and on about the other systems. So Kinesis,
0: that are being developed. Kinesis is an Amazon managed service. So, this is a point of connection between two different cloud providers, um, which is which is interesting to me because I haven't done many shows about this heterogeneous cloud architecture that you know we seem to be moving towards this world where there are it is going to be this like heterogeneity it's not like you're going to be in one cloud provider and you're totally locked into that cloud provider it seems like the direction that we're moving in is you you know in 10 10 years or so your stuff is going to be just you're going to use a cornucopia of different managed services maybe you're Piping your data from Amazon S3 through Kinesis to Google TensorFlow, um, and and you know I, I'm just curious about what your vision is for how that might look.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, one way to think about it is is that there's a bit of a fallacy in uh, in how enterprises adopt these technologies, and that we we think that people, uh, you know migrate or they rewrite things which happens um but it's generally a lot of work um and we've uh, we, we found some customers will um, get excited about migration projects and then find that they take a long time and it usually where i see people adopting the new stuff is always in the greenfield projects the the things that are starting new or when you have an op- when you're rewriting a uh you know reassessing a stack anyway um i was with with a customer yesterday who they want to just introduce more machine learning into their kind of data stack. And so they're reassessing the whole data stack and suddenly everything's fair game to being, um, to done. And, th- and that's where this particular customer is considering, um, using data flow and they'll probably start with Kinesis and then, um, move further upstream on Google cloud. And uh, so, so what, you know, what does the future look like? I, I see, I, I, as far as, um, this like cross cloud situation, uh, yeah. I, I see people um, adopting the the best fit technology for their needs um, as 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 this new project gets spin up, and then um, once they hit some kind of uh, you know you know if they feel some gravity towards a cloud provider or a solution, they may migrate some legacy things at some point. But generally, yeah, we're gonna we're moving fast enough that we're gonna be in a kind of a multi-environment world for a while as teams adopt the new the new thing um, and they don't spend the time necessarily to migrate the old thing immediately.
0: You know I think there was a period of time and we're still somewhat in it where people are maybe a little gun shy when it comes to using um, Managed services that that smell like they might get locked in. Um, like if you get locked into DynamoDB, uh, it might be that's Amazon's Amazon DynamoDB. It might be similar to feeling locked into Oracle. Um, and people are really cognizant of this. Um, but my sense is that uh, the uh, these these cloud providers, and you can correct me if I'm wrong about this, the cloud providers are are getting cognizant of this and they are trying to architect their newer systems in a way that perhaps there is not as much lock-in and the switching cost is reduced because they get the sense that they're dealing with more sophisticated customers. I mean, maybe you can't speak to competitors, but perhaps you can speak to what degree that is true with Google.
1: Yeah, I think this is this is particularly poignant as cloud becomes mainstream in the enterprise. So for some time, cloud's been a, a kind of uh, I keep using the term startup for lack of a better word, but a you know a digital native or cloud or, or startup uh, tech company thing. And in many cases, these people are moving so fast that that the risk to them isn't getting locked in as much as it is like not you know not growing over the course of the next month. They're very ne- near term sighted, not growing over the next the month to make the next funding round or lock in the next big customer and so to they're optimizing for uh product performance now as opposed to like um cost portability and long term uh thinking and, and, and but as we move to enterprise customers or or even just you know maybe more thoughtful customers as as cloud matures and people have are now thinking longer term about their situation uh yeah lock in is is becoming a bigger concern um, we, the software business, isn't uh, hasn't quickly forgotten. You know, the vendors of yesteryear, traditional databases, and that that would lock in customers. And uh, so, so Google Cloud is doing some interesting things um, to to mitigate those concerns. Uh, so, one is our commitment to open source. Uh, I think you're seeing that we kind of lead with an open source project, and then we'll bring in managed services to help make. Um, Running those open source projects, fantastic at Google. This is true with like Kubernetes and Google Container Engine. It's true with, um, Apache Beam and Dataflow. Um, uh, we've announced that we want to do some things around machine learning that would, uh, uh, align with the open source TensorFlow project. So, uh, this is, this is one way we think we can make the, the lock in decision for companies easy. You, you adopt the latest, and greatest open source projects, and then you come to Google to have a great experience running those, knowing that, you know, if if things that work out for you you can always bounce.
0: Interesting. Can you talk more about that, the workaround machine learning and TensorFlow that you referred to?
1: Sure. So uh, I'll I'll do my best to try and stick to what we've announced publicly, which is, um, you know, Jeff Dean was on stage at a, a Google Cloud event earlier in the year, uh, to mention that we wanted to, to um, I think we were announcing at that point like a private alpha for uh, cloud, a cloud machine learning platform, and that platform, I guess, has uh, several parts. One, uh, Google is is releasing its own um, APIs uh, backed by Google's own models. So there's a there's a Uh, vision API where you can submit uh, images and and Google will tag those with objects using our vast um, uh, image detection model. There's a um, I want to make sure again, these are all publicly announced, but there's a uh, natural language processing API and there's a um, speech API uh, all allowing you to submit just data and then Google Maps that like, like Labels and categorizes that data based on our models. So that, that's one little chunk, and then the other chunk is um, running your your TensorFlow code um, on on Google's cloud. Uh, one of the things that was also announced was um, uh, the fact that Google uses uh, tensor compute units. Uh, it would be interesting to see if any future Google Cloud offerings involve um, uh, the the the, the uh, or I'm sorry, it was a tensor processing you know, TPU's, um, and and also uh, uh, and then the other part was the the managed service that helps you um, run TensorFlow. So I don't, I don't have much details on that. I think that's still in uh, some form of private release to uh, certain customers, but it's something very exciting for sure.
0: Sure. So is. I, I guess maybe you can't talk about this, but to what degree is TensorFlow is running a managed TensorFlow service similar to running the Cloud Dataflow service?
1: That's a great question. Um, I I think so. What what might a, man, a managed TensorFlow service look like? Uh, if you follow the the pattern of Dataflow, With Dataflow is you just you submit your code to the service, and and the service does all the execution work. Um, you could uh, see something like that. I think for TensorFlow, which would be you write your um, TensorFlow processing graph uh, and submit to the service. Um, generally, there's kind of two parts to the, the the TensorFlow work, I think. And this is a bit outside my domain, but there's the um, uh, the actual processing of data, and then there's the maintenance of models. So you'll have a, a, a model within TensorFlow that you'll um, Either be creating with with upstream data, you'll be you'll, you'll be modifying, and and there be some presumably some versioning of models. Uh, it's unclear. It'd be interesting to see how much of that ends up in a in a managed service. How much of that is taken care of for you?
0: Hmm. So, given that you are a product manager on the Cloud Dataflow team, you know obviously the user generally does not have to know what is going on behind the scenes in terms of resource allocation. Uh, but since you're the product manager I'm just I'm curious how to what degree you have been involved in that in that process like and, and how you manage it like uh, the discussion with the engineers about you know under what circumstances does uh, do we scale up or down for a given job um, maybe you could just take me inside the product development process for cloud data flow
1: sure so uh so one one way to think uh about this is so we we have a high level like product vision that is kind of our north star in many ways of of what we think the world at large wants in general out of data processing and that kind of goes to this um we use the term no ops or no knobs uh which is you submit your code and then we just we take care of it from there um Within Google, the, most of the engineers working on Dataflow have previously worked on um, uh, our internal systems, you know, Flume and MapReduce, and they're they're very familiar with uh, configuration knobs, as we call them. Um, and and we're excited to offer uh, a future where there's people don't have to configure things about their pipeline, things that should be auto detected by an intelligent system. So that's kind of uh, we we continue to refine. Um, you know, I and engineering work together to, to refine that vision, and then we, um, once a quarter, and as our planning process goes, we we take a look at what's the next chunk of um, stuff we want to chip away. You know, where are we at today? Where do we? Um, what do we want to accomplish the next quarter that brings us close to that vision? Where where the rubber meets the road, I guess, is uh, is in the process of um, launching features. So uh, the product team. Um, we engage with uh, our current customers. Um, we're constantly getting feedback about um, what's working, what's not working. And we try and uh, distill that feedback into not not necessarily, you know, this is a common product practice, not necessarily they're asking for X, so we should give them X, but they're asking for X, Y, and Z. And all those things actually could be solved with A, so we should deliver A for them. Um, and, uh, and so engineering and product will get together and figure out what A looks like. And and that will go into what we call like an early access release, um, and then that we go back to those customers who wanted X, Y, and Z, and say, so here's A, yeah, and 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 all usually product is kind of managing this conversation. What's, you know, here's A. Um, we'd love for you to try it out. Let us know how it goes. In the case of, I think you brought up auto scaling, for example, um, we're in the process of releasing auto scaling for batch is now uh fully enabled by default and we're in the process of leading auto scaling for streaming pipelines um uh, and so yeah we're right in the thick of getting feedback from customers about how they are experiencing auto scaling is this tuned um where is this not behaving in the way they would expect and then we'll go back to the engineering team and see if there's ways we can um adjust and, and and respond to those concerns and
0: Interesting. So we have done a bunch of shows about the evolution of the Kubernetes cluster management system and how that evolved from the lessons of Borg, which is Google's internal cluster management. We've also talked about how TensorFlow evolved from the previous system known as DistBelief. And the impression I get from the story of these different systems is that Google has this constant urge to... Roll the lessons of the past into a new system. Um, and so, you know, this happened with, with disbelief to TensorFlow, with, with Borg to Kubernetes. So, when one of these systems updates is happening, like if you're moving from disbelief to TensorFlow or from mill wheel to data flow, what What's the internal migration story from one system to another? like do people have freedom to move or are they just are they just voting with their feet uh, do do people have to be encouraged to switch? How does that work?
1: Yeah uh, there's certainly um, I think you you kind of described it it's it's a usually it's a freedom to to move. Um, there's a yeah, yeah, people vote with their feet. They, 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 jump on system X, Y, or Z in general. There's, um, there's also, I think, some discussion within the, the group. There's a lot of debate about what we want to see out of our emerging systems. Um, because I think we recognize that, uh, like certain, you know, I guess what I'm trying to say is teams have come to Dataflow and said, we'd love for you to support these things so that we can move to data Dataflow, uh, and that's um, where where you could say they should just wait to see what we build and then choose to to use it if they like. But so, so
0: internal uh, customer dog fooding process that goes yeah
1: through. yeah exactly and and internally I think we all believe that uh, you know fewer well supported systems serves people better than lots of poorly supported systems and and so there's um, people are voting with their feet but then they're also uh, nudging, you know, their preferred system in the direction that I think serves their use case, which generally serves everyone better as we get more informed about how people are using these systems and accommodating them.
0: So does, so when a migration is happening from an old system to a new system, does the old system get maintained? Like, is there somebody out there who's still doing disbelief maintenance or somebody who's still doing millwheel maintenance?
1: So uh, I, I can't speak, of course, to disbelief, but in the case of Flume and Millwill, we're still running Flume and Millwill um, within a Google, but we're also, uh, there's an effort um, kind of like we've done with, with Beam. We're, we're separating the APIs and the, the programming model from execution, and we're, we're doing what we can to um, bring those customers running on traditional APIs along with us. Uh, into the future by having shared backend systems where possible, so um, you can imagine that we're we're constantly making improvements to, to Flume and MillWheel customers because we're improving the shared backend portions between Dataflow Flume and MillWheel.
0: Okay, I see. So you've referenced Beam a couple times. We talked about this in detail in Francis's episode. What's your vision for the Apache Beam open source project, and how is that proceeding?
1: Yeah, that's uh, uh, we're kind of tickled, or at least I am. I should speak for myself about the the progress of Beam. Uh, so the the vision maybe has a few parts. One one is job portability, which is um, we're trying to save save the world, if you will, uh, from we've all been burned by a new emerging technology, like <laughs> processing technology that we're excited about, and we have to go. Rewrite some portion of our jobs on the new uh, the new tech, and then there's a, a, a mix of job types within an organization. Um, Beam is looking to be kind of a, a right once run anywhere data processing solution, so you can, um, which is a bit novel in in data processing open source. We've generally the the things you see ending up in the Apache Foundation are better execution engines with. With unique APIs. So it's exciting to see a, um, a job portability solution that allows a single API that's, that's not necessarily bringing an execution engine with it. Uh, so that's one part. Um, another vision kind of a principle or, or component to the vision uh, is the the B model that, which is the data flow model which we've talked about some that uh, we shouldn't be describing our jobs in a a way that's specific to how they're executed. We should just describe them in a general way. Um, and and so the, the Beam model tries to, which is, which, as we've spoken earlier, doesn't have to be specific to streaming or batch. That um, One is kind of a subset of the other, and you can generally describe all data processing jobs in, in a single way. And in those senses, Beam kind of is trying to be something like SQL, uh, allow you to describe a job in a generalized way and run it anywhere. Um, uh, so, so those are kind of the, the two things that I think get me most excited about being
0: I see. Yeah, I like the analogy to SQL. Um, so, you know, in SQL, like we just did a couple shows about Postgres versus MySQL and you know, there for for a naive database consumer, it might just seem like, okay, what's the difference between these? I don't really care. Uh, but there are differences in things like subtle things like schema flexibility, or um, you know how the the database handles transactions when uh, it scales to a certain size, and uh, you know that might have influence on which database would would be best for you. But whichever database you're using, probably the you know select statements are going to work, and the update statements are going to work the same. So you know SQL as this unified. Language layer. Similarly, Beam is this unified language layer for specifying how you want things processed um, that will be that will be handled differently depending on the underlying execution, whether uh, execution engine, whether that's Storm or Flink or Spark or Dataflow or whatever is the system that's implementing the uh, the underlying processing of the Beam. Um, the Beam schema or or design, uh, processing design. So maybe you can explain, like, what are some of the trade-offs that these different streaming systems are making? Like, if I specify my, my Beam data processing, pipe, Apache Beam data processing pipeline in Beam, what's going to, why would I choose one system over another for the underlying execution engine?
1: That's a great question. Um, I so the so so one one might be I guess it's probably de- de- it's, it's it comes down to a a performance question. Um, another, it comes down to how well they support the B model. Um, as would probably be like like some uh, some runners may support certain features of the B model that others might not, as they. Mature. and so people may choose different runners based on access to that feature. And then, uh, going back to performance, I think uh, you'll you'll see systems that specialize in certain forms of low latency. Um, I think you'll see systems that will uh, will specialize in in data guarantees. Uh, uh, so, uh, and and not just low latency, but like there's there, there's a performance. Per, per spectrum um, and 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 the factors affecting the performance spectrum often are your desired latency your data shape and so I think I th- it's presumably you'll we'll see um, and we're already seeing some runners that are um, better at certain data shapes and better at uh, certain latency requirements what what I th- what maybe as a follow-up to your question what I think is going to be interesting that we haven't thought a lot about will happen with Beam, that I'm hoping will happen with Beam, is and when I say Beam, Apache Beam, is uh, there are really neat emerging projects, uh, execution frameworks for executing jobs that don't get the traction because it requires a switch. Um, and, and so uh, some of the, the products that most people use, in part, they're using them just because of their um, community adoption, and um, because they already are familiar with the APIs. Once people are familiar with Beam, and there's a strong adoption around Beam, I think we see a much more competitive uh, race on how to execute pipelines. And we can mm. more easily adopt some of these nascent projects that are doing really interesting things, and they can get um, a lot more traction in the market sooner because yeah. the friction to adopt them is less
0: yeah so so i know we're almost out of time but uh, do you have any speculation on what uh, so you know we've talked about like kind of the 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 motivation for data flow for developing data flow is one of the as a newer execution engine for example was this event time skew and solving that event time skew was a good enough breakthrough to develop a new stream processing system so what are the outstanding problems in stream processing that might lead to new data processing frameworks that people will develop that may or may not be Beam compliant, but in any case, if it's Beam compliant, you could easily switch from data flow to X processing mm-hmm. system that solves this problem.
1: Sure. Uh, so one one problem that, that we're keenly aware of and, and trying to solve on our own, but I'd be interested to see how others solve this. Are are how you manage um, pipelines that are already in production? So you've you've deployed a streaming pipeline, um, and we use the term pipeline a lot in reference to data flow and beam. But you could you know a, a streaming application, uh, and and now you have to update that that application or pipeline. It's you know the the current state of the art for doing that is not very satisfying. it's It's typically deploying um, a parallel pipeline with the, with the changes you want and then um, adjusting the input sources to to migrate to the new pipeline and then taking down the old one. And this affects your your write pattern. It affects your data guarantees. Um, so one one thing that dataflow service is trying to do, for example, is allow an update in place. you deploy a new pipeline. And it, um, it just replaces the current one and state is automatically moved from one pipeline to the other. Uh, currently, this, this works um, in the Dataflow service for uh, uh, limited types of updates. And we're hoping to expand that over time to more updates. But I, that's one place where I think it would be interesting to see um, others, runners innovate. Uh, one thing we're doing on the... The batch side that we want to do more on the streaming side. Eventually, we call it dynamic work rebalancing. So this would be an area where people could uh, make improvements to streaming, and that's um, how uh, how I balance work. You know, as my as my input data changes, um, the way I've allocated work between various workers may may fall out of um, optimal. So I. Uh, I, I t- traditionally, I, I, streaming systems will spread out key ranges across their workers so that a certain worker is allocated a key range to do uh, aggregations and processing on that subset of data. Um, but if my key range changes, I would want also my, um, my workers to then evolve w- and, and, and properly allocate kind of this new distribution of data those are things that we're tackling i'd love to see other streaming systems also tackle what you know these emerging problems in streaming
0: that's great well uh eric anderson i want to thank you for coming on the show i'm glad we finally got this together um and this has definitely been worth the wait uh, i really enjoyed the conversation
1: thank you jeff and, and i want to I plug software engineering daily it's a pretty fantastic um, <laughs> outlet source so thanks for for doing that jeff
0: yeah thank you for listening glad you enjoy it Thanks to Symphono for sponsoring Software Engineering Daily. Symphono is a custom engineering shop where senior engineers tackle big tech challenges while learning from each other. Check it out at symphono.com/se daily. That's s y m p h o n o.com/se daily. Thanks again Symphono.
1: Wow!